0: everybody welcome to the map the mental health and addiction podcast i am andy bernstein your moderator and co-host and uh, we are a podcast dedicated to discussing mental health and addiction in an open and honest way it's an important topic and one that is affecting one in five americans we have a great guest today and joining us will be joanne peterson from learn to cope but before we get started we must meet the other members of our extreme or ex- esteemed panel. Let's welcome <laughs> <them. laughs> Willie Drinkwater and Kristen Perry Long. I'm going to let each of them tell you about who they are because wow, they can I do a better the
1: th- the list. What did I do? What? I dropped to the bottom of the list. What did I do?
0: Oh, well, you're back up. Okay, tell me who you are. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm Chris Berry-Long. I am a recovery coach, advocate, and family educator for Aware Recovery Care, which is a 52-week in-home treatment program. It's amazing. Uh, Reach out if you want to learn more.
0: And you are a dedicated parent of two children that are currently in recovery.
1: Yep. And uh, this particular uh, guest is near and dear to my heart because I will share briefly, if I get able to have a word in Edgewise... um, why she is near and dear to my
0: heart yeah this is like the dinner table when everybody's going for the food all at the same time it's like a (laughs) free for all all right let's also welcome the great willie drinkwater who is a uh a great expert in the field and uh willie who are you tell us about Uh yourself
2: Hello. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, Willie Drinkwater here. Uh, I've been in long-term recovery for quite a few years and stuff. Uh, I'm an educator for UMass Boston in the Addiction Counseling Education Program. I'm also a board member of MADAC, Mass Association of Alcohol Drug Abuse Counselors. Uh, I have a private practice where I work with people that have addiction and co-occurring disorders.
0: And you are a, um, a former... Comedy writer.
2: Uh, former comedy writer. I go back to the days of uh, WBCN, The Rock of Boston, one of well, the rock, well, The Rock of Boston. The, you morning a- the morning show, The Not Before Breakfast Big Mattress Players with Billy you- West and Charles Laquadera. Uh,
0: there you go. And uh, so uh, let's get started. And uh, before we start the conversation with our special guest, Joanne McDonald joanne peterson i'm sorry joanne peterson from <laughs> hello uh, learn learn to cope uh we're gonna talk about an article that our executive producer mike weber sent over this morning and it's about the opioid crisis roaring back in alabama and there's the article and in reading the article um it was funny because i also looked at what was going on in the new york times so obviously this is making its way back into uh the news but um Over the last six months since COVID-19 brought the nation to a standstill, uh, this this comes to us from the New York Times, the opioid epidemic has taken a sharp turn for the worse. More than 40 states have recorded increases, including Alabama, in opioid-related deaths since the pandemic began, according to the AMA. And in, in Arkansas, for example, the use of Narcan, an overdosing drug, overdosing reverse drug has tripled. In Jacksonville, it has seen a 40% increase in overdose-related calls. In March alone, your county in Pennsylvania recorded three times more overdose deaths than normal. So my question to you guys is, are you seeing this in both of your worlds? And why do you think this is happening from your
2: perspective? Chris, you wanna take it first? No. No, okay, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think you know it, it was. We're, we're in a period now. It, it reminds me of nine eleven, where you know for a month or two people were numb, and then all of a sudden they started started to have feelings and anxiety and depression. And I think I think we're at that stage with the pandemic now too, where. People have just had enough, you know, and they're looking for relief, and uh, it's it's not good out there. I mean, uh, alcohol is jumping is jumping up in addition to opiates and stuff too. So, yeah, but I think it's uh, you know it's a maladaptive way of trying to deal deal with all the stretchers the stressors involved with the pandemic going on. You know, the pandemic, not to mention the uh, election, which we won't which we won't talk about for too right. long. That could be a whole show un, unto itself. But uh, you're not kidding. You know, I mean, p- people are uh, you know afraid too what's going to happen at, at election time, you know, it's a or, stressful
0: time. No doubt. Very and stressful. I, I actually listened to Brene Brown. And I don't know if you ever listen to her. She's great. And Brene said, um, her last podcast was about, um, the surge capacity that there was somebody who she had on talking about the surge capacity and how everybody's kind of hit a wall right now. Yeah. That's yeah. like, you've been, we've all been running on adrenaline for a while and usually we have a way of just like, for, for a couple months, we can keep going, but I think everybody's kind of hit hit a wall.
2: Yeah, and the more the the more adrenaline you get released, you know, the the, the, the more it's beating your body down. So, yeah. Chris?
1: Millie and I just talked to you each, yesterday because I've got, like, I've got so many people in crisis right now, and it's not like your normal crisis. Yeah. It's like your helter-skelter crisis. Like, everybody's going, like, in... 96 different directions as opposed to like either using or not using yeah. So now it's like using and and it's just everything it's I don't know I mean it's overwhelming but Willie said the same thing he's like everybody's hitting that COVID wall you know it's like enough is enough
0: yeah, yeah you know it's funny I, I do another show and I was with my co-host yes sure my host yesterday I asked? I said co-host or host host and like something happened and like he just went off like it's like I was like dude you are wound way tight and I and I think you know that's a lot I mean I you know my wife works at home we're all you know there's a lot of togetherness. (laughs) there's a lot of togetherness and
2: yeah yeah have you had those moments yet where it's just like it's just like, you know, you, you or she will just, just all of a sudden you just turn and snap and then you go, Oh, sorry. You know, and then you have sorry. to go for like a two mile walk. Just to exactly. It off.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Let, let me get out. And then the dog starts barking. Anyway, enough of me, but this is a big problem. And we're going to talk to somebody who um, is on the front lines of this and we're going to dig deeper. So um, let's welcome Joanne Peterson. The founder and executive director of Learn to Cope. The reason I said Joanne McDonald, because I actually used to work for a Joanne McDonald, <laughs> and, and that went in. So I apologize. Um, uh, Joanne is the executive director and founder of Learn to Cope, which is a nonprofit peer led support network, which was established in 2004. They have helped thousands of parents and family members deal with loved ones who are addicted to opioids and other drugs, opiates and other drugs. So welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me. And it's so funny that you called me Joanne McDonald because that's my mother's maiden name, McDonald.
0: (laughs) So I come from a
3: huge McDonald family. So that's kind of funny. Yeah,
0: (laughs) E-I-O. See, right? So I'm not that far off. Well, You guys, Willie and Chris, you know Joanne. So I'm gonna let you guys kind of talk to her about who Learn to Cope is or what Learn to Cope is and uh, the great work that she's doing. So I'll turn it over to you guys.
1: So Joanne, do you remember the first time we met? I do. It was at the the hospital in Brockton. Yep. In the basement. And I I came with a mutual, a friend. Yeah. I figured there was gonna be like 10 people. And the room was packed. And your son shared the story, his story. And I felt like he was a fly on on my wall in my life. And I was like, you know, this is exactly what I'm going through. How can somebody else go through this? And then you hear all the stories, the grandparents, the aunts, the moms, the dads, the husbands, the wives. They were all there. But what caught me, and I get goosebumps to this day, was it was a Thursday night meeting. And there was a family, and they had come in late. And before we close the meeting, you said I'd like to take a moment of silence. We have a family here that lost their son on Tuesday. Yeah. And I just like I had to I had to pick up what you were putting down because it's what it's what changed me, it's what opened my eyes to understanding that we can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the first time I met you. Yeah.
3: I, 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 I remember that night um, like it was yesterday. Yeah. We were all kind of, um, you know, sadly that's still going on obviously, you know, within our groups every, almost every week. And it's something you never get used to, but it's a tricky thing, you know, trying to make sure um, when you're in a room full of people or right now on a zoom call with pages of people in crisis and when somebody or two people lose someone in one week, you know, you just have to, you just have to deal with it and just say, we have to stop for a moment. We've lost two people this week or we've lost one person this week. And it, you know, it's self care for us and for our facilitators is huge because, you know, like you guys said, frontline workers like Chris and myself and you guys and Willie, you know, you're hearing a lot of trauma and you're you're in that you're in that moment, like in real time and you just wanna make sure you're doing the right and saying the right things and not re traumatizing someone and mm-hmm. you know, when you have a room full of people that are there because they're in fear because they're afraid this is gonna happen and then they're hearing about it happening. You have to be very mindful of both both of those populations because now you've got people, it might be their first night and they're scared to death because they just heard someone passed away. Um, you know, and you wanna make sure they continue to come so that we can help them. So you have to almost explain to them, like, I'm so sorry, this is your first meeting. Um, if you're here, then you know that this is the reality of what we live. Um, we can assure you, you'll hear hope too as you become used to coming to our meetings. So it's really kind of a tough, it's like balancing balls sometimes, you know, like just making sure everybody gets, leaves there feeling better than they did when they came in. And a lot of times when someone loses someone, we're the first place they want to go because that's their family. That's the people that have been helping them all along. And, you know, they need to let their family know that we won't be here anymore because our daughter died. And then they feel displaced. And it's just really crazy what what this epidemic has done, you know, to families like Krista's and mine and so many thousands and millions of others around them. The, I mean, addiction, let's face it, has been around for decades, hundreds of years, really. But, I mean, this opiate um, crisis has just ravaged um
1: so many not getting any better either,
3: no, it's definitely not so, although you're out there you I keep hearing the words, "There's no longer an opiate epidemic, and I have to raise my hand and say, "Yes, there is <laughs> um, but I mean, I think what they're trying to do is say it's not just opiates, it's many other drugs, which is true, but i I say, you know, I raise my hand every time and say, "Please don't say that it's over because it's not." So Um,
0: tell us about Learn to Cope and kind of how it all got started because, um, you know, for our audience out there, it would be great to, um, you know, you're doing such amazing things. Let's talk about kind of the origin of how it got started and what you're currently doing and the programs you provide.
3: Sure. So um, it just, it was sort of an accident. I didn't know it was going to start. And now that it's been, you know, reflecting back, now on, you know, almost 20 years, really, I've been dealing with the opiate crisis, um, 16 of them being learned to cope, but um, it's really more like 40 something. because I grew up with a lot of addiction and mental health issues in my family as a sibling. Um I lost a brother, um, he passed in 2011. And I have a sister who, you know, has severe mental health, you know, schizophrenia, and alcoholism. So as a little girl, I was always running around with my mother trying to figure out how to help them. You know, my brother would be in and out of jail, um, incarcerated from the age of like 18 up into his 50s. And it was just, his main issue was addiction. But he would do these things and end up, you know, violating and going back and back. And he ended up almost institutionalized, I think. Um, because there was no real talk about how to treat somebody. It was more like the hidden thing. You know, it's not something you were supposed to really tell anybody about, even though everyone knew, because it was in the newspaper, that he robbed a pizza truck. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You know,
3: but I mean, and and he was the nicest, sweetest person ever, and everyone loved him, but he just had this horrible issue. Um, But anyway yeah if i can
2: interject joanne too i think it's amazing how we've gone from the point the point where we've been you know hiding it and it was you don't talk about it to now you see in obituaries where parents will say my son my daughter had a long battle with opiates you know
3: all the time Yeah.
2: yeah i mean that the one big fear that i have now with the pandemic is i'm i'm starting to see on the north shore i'm starting to see Uh, a return of of stigmatizing people with addictions it's like if it's if it's not the covid and quote medical even though mental health is medical. you know there's this i mean i actually had a client that tried to get into uh an emergency room and he actually recorded the security guards telling him to get off the campus they didn't have time for mental health because the er was full of covid and stuff and it was it was a hospital that had a crisis team too and the security guards wouldn't even let him access the crisis team so i mean I, I just right. hope that we're not getting back into stigma again, you know. Um,
3: well, I think
1: you're touching on something that I've been seeing too, Willie. I'm okay. Right. Totally Without in the harm. stigma again, because what happened is COVID removed substance abuse, right? Co- yeah. no, we don't have any acts anymore. We only have COVID. Yeah. Now we're re-entering it again, and our train in the public eye came to a screaming stop when COVID started. And there's still people behind the scenes that are working hard and trying to make that difference. But you know, how much, how many Zoom meetings can you do to make a difference? How how is that going to be impactful? Where you know the the boots on the ground uh, doing the differences are not they're not they're not as active as they used to be. So the stigma has reared its ugly ugly. Yeah, I
2: mean, the big thing that I'm trying to do now, not, not not I'm I'm trying to be more 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 cognizant myself. I, I very rarely you know, use terms like addicts and alcoholics. I'm really trying to get that focus on human beings with a substance use disorder. Yeah. and I'm teaching that to my students too. It's like, you know, the second you say addict, alcoholic, you're labeling somebody, you're categorizing them and they're, yeah. they're much, much more than their addiction, they're much more than their label, so yeah. you know, I it's, think that's important. So um,
0: Joanne, mm-hmm. let's go back to finishing, because we got off point shocking <laughs> uh, shocking Sorry. shocking you know you're in trouble when I'm bringing you're everybody
1: have back today Andy like you're going to make us stay on point I well, know
2: it's amazing isn't it
0: <laughs> what
2: are, you? What are you what what is, what is this? <laughs> got
1: a shirt on
2: all right
0: go ahead Joanne continue about <laughs> learning to cup
3: yes oh so just to make a long beginning short you know the days of a, a young kid growing up in little randolph which I think Willie you grew up there too right
2: Yeah, no, no, no. I was a Connecticut guy that came up to go to Merrimack.
3: (laughs) Oh, okay. Why did I think you were from Randolph? This drink waters from Randolph anyway.
2: That could be, yeah.
3: But anyway, um, you know, years later, I had my own kids. And, you know, I used to say things like, you know, um, I'm going to be so open. I'm going to talk about marijuana, alcohol, you know. And I'm not in recovery, so I'm someone that will will have an occasional glass of wine. But my husband never drank because he he did years and years ago, but he quit drinking um, because of diabetes. So it's not something we really had a lot around in the house. But mm-hmm. you know, camping trips and stuff, there would there would be alcohol or or whatever, but not to a huge, crazy extent. But Anyway, I would, you know, talk to the kids about alcohol and and marijuana, and I would say things like, you know, this runs in our family, you know, you have to be very mindful and this and that. And then, you know, my son graduated high school and that's when the big Oxycontin boom was happening, although none of us knew that. Mm -hmm. And it was the year 2001. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know he quickly changed from one person to another in a very, very short period of time. And I was thinking about schizophrenia because going back to being, you know, a young girl with a sister with those symptoms, before we knew what she had, she would be up all night, sleeping all day. She drank a lot of alcohol. She was you know, very talkative, 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 one minute and the next minute, very quiet and depressed. And that was really what I was seeing with him. But what I didn't know is it was because he was using heroin by the time I figured out oh, what was wrong with him. And that looks very similar, really, some of those symptoms. Um, I see Chris nodding her head because that's what we'd see. So when there was really no smell of alcohol, but I wasn't thinking I had never even heard of Oxycontin, never heard of it. Um, I knew heroin was always an issue um, in the seventies. I didn't know that people could snort it now. Um, And I just didn't see this coming. Um, And then I brought him to one day, I I said to him, are you okay? Like I brought him, he he was getting sick a lot, kind of like flu symptoms, you know, what I didn't realize were withdrawal symptoms. Um, And then I remember one time, bringing him to a clinic because I thought, I think he's got bipolar or schizophrenia symptoms coming, you know, from what I remembered as a kid. And, you know, he went in, now he was 18. There was there was no health insurance anymore because we didn't have Obamacare yet. Um, so once there was no health insurance, you know, he paid for everything um, once someone was 18. Obviously he wasn't working because of his addiction. Um, and he went in, he came out in like five minutes. I, and I, I wanted to go in with him, he didn't want me in there with him for obvious reasons. Right. Um, you know, because he was 18 now, really, I'm thinking it was like, no, he was hiding his best friend, which was his. Um, and then he came out with a prescription for lithium and sleeping pills. And um, the clinician came to me and said, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is he has bipolar disorder the bad news is he has bipolar disorder. And I was really confused by that. And he said, you know, at least you know now, you know, I'm going to give him something so he can sleep at night because he is not sleeping. And then the lithium will help his chemical disorder. So I was relieved and I was just like, oh, this is great. You know, now we, we know, and you know, I felt like at least I had like solid information and now I could learn how to help him. Um, So I was relieved about it, and then, it obviously things got way worse after that because mixing these drugs is not a good idea. So
0: lithium and lithium and sleeping sleeping pills,
3: pills and heroin, which I did not know about. I did not know he was using heroin. So Mm. that was tough. Um, Long story short, we found out. We realized, you know, all the symptoms we hear about happened, and you know. By 2004, three years later, we were at our wit's end um, because again, no health insurance. It was very hard in those days to get a bed. Once I knew what was wrong, I had gone to a local meeting and I had raised my hand in desperation, saying, I need help. And as soon as I started talking, the hand went up like this and I was like, okay. And she's like, this meeting is not about your son. It's about you. I was like, Hmm. no, it's not. (laughs) It's about him and he's going to die. I need help. Can you tell me where I can bring him?" And it was like, we don't do that here. And I just got up and walked out. That meeting today would be great for me because I know I need to take care of myself. I know this and that. But when I was in pure, pure crisis, I needed resources, information, education. I needed help. Um, and there was nothing. Like, And then when I did find a bed, you know you hear this all the time you think that first treatment center is the last it was far from the last um you know three and four days and then they'd be home again and then you have to learn the hard way like back in those days chris says boots on the ground that's what we were right. we had to find all this out on our own there was no facebook or linkedin or instagram or twitter or podcast it was nothing mm. it was more like kick him out that's all you can do and i'm like no that didn't work for jimmy my brother or Marianne, and I'm not losing my son. I'm going to do something about this. There has to be something that I can do. And I didn't want to end up back at Concord State Prison visiting him, which I ended up doing. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, and it wasn't Concord. But so long story short, all that was going on. And then finally, the big one, he gets in big trouble, ends up arrested. Um, It gets into the newspapers the old stigma begins that I used
0: to Why feel. in the newspaper was it?
3: He, he did something you know, involving stealing. You know, okay. it, ended up, it ended up in like the little local newspaper, you know, the big news of the day. Okay. And then the stigma begins and it was all about what he did. It wasn't about why. And, you know, I wanted to kill myself, literally. It traumatized me to a point of no return almost because I think after so long trying to help him without any help from anyone else really. I mean, I would pick him up at a detox and I'd be like trying to ask him questions and they'd be like, we can't, there's HIPAA laws. We can't talk to you. And it's like, well, nothing, you know, no, just, you know, no signs and symptoms of relapse, no like, you know, he had go to Al-Anon, which was fine but I needed more than that. And it was like, I needed I didn't even know about how an overdose happened. That was really something I should have been talked about. But anyway, um, once yeah, it went it, yeah. And once it went in the newspaper, that was the dangerous part for me personally, because I was either going to kill myself or do something about it. And I'm telling you, I thought about it because I thought I can't go back to Sundays at the jail. And that's where I was headed. And it was like, you know being dragged back to the abyss for me but then True, you childhood know,
0: stuff from your childhood too yeah, yeah. I, in, yeah. I
3: was it was actually what you'd call today is re-traumatization okay I was already a traumatized person which I didn't even know then I know this now but then that happened and that almost sent me over the edge because yeah. it was just so hard and But it actually, in a way, it turned into a blessing because it lit the fire in my belly. And I thought, you know what? These people are gonna talk about this in the newspaper, but there's a whole other side to this. There's kids all over the place using these pills that no one knows about. By then I had kind of learned about them and was researching it and this and that. I came out like a lion and I called the news and I was like, we got a real problem here. And I felt like I had nothing left to lose. He was in jail now. Um, you know, bright future, you know, and I felt like it was tanked, like it was over. So I thought I have nothing else to lose here. I'm just going to talk about this. So, and I did. And from there, I just, more and more things happened. I ended up at a DA event and standing up in front of like 200 people and I still have it. It's like, I wrote, everything I was going to say on paper. And then when I tried to read it, I cried all over it. So the ink, like was oh, God. <laughs> it, it turned into this blue mess and I just threw it. And I was just like, I, this is what happened. This is what's going on. Nobody's talking about it. We're losing people. I'm hearing from parents that have lost their kids that no one even knows why it's just, died suddenly at home. And once I did that, it started getting out into the news. And all of a sudden I just started hearing from people from all over the place. And like I said, there was no Facebook back then. It was more like Grassroots. Cut out an article and mail it to a friend. And I ended up like speaking all over the place. And my son actually, um, that helped him getting, that was actually helped him getting away from the drug for a period of time.
0: How come do you think?
3: Well, it, you know, cold turkey, um, really was a rough, a rough um, time for him, obviously. Mm. Not the best way to, to recover obviously but that back, back then that's what happened and um and he started getting his feelings back after a while and saying and the remorse like I can't believe what this has done to me and and you know I started talking to him I'm like well you're all over the newspaper you know um you might as well talk about why and he's like you're right so we kind of did that together a bit and um today he's a long-term recovery he's going on with his life I don't like to really talk a lot about his story anymore because he has a right to live his life now. He's not not just it anymore. It's about families. It's about, I I will say this though, um, you know, people in recovery, um, I feel are like the best people you could ever meet and learn from because they, you know, after they get through that and they find recovery, they are the ones that are, out there helping, you know, the others, you know, getting out of that hole. And, you know, like I said, he found that and he has many, many, he has his life, you know and wonderful person, father, husband, you know. It's great. But um, today my role is really not to be about what happened to me or my family, but about how do we help people cope.
2: Other families.
0: Yeah. yeah great segue because um you know it sounds like you've really taken taken this this um experience of yourself and really turned it into a calling where you almost like um became a, almost a pioneer in a sense of um you know being somebody in in a time when there was a lot of stigma or there was more stigma now there is today but you you basically took it upon yourself or your experience to help others. So having said that, tell us about, um, you know, the origin of Learn to Cope. And I'm gonna let Willie talk to you about, um, you know, your programs and, and uh, from a, from a uh, you know, a peer reco- recovery, but tell us about um, you know, the process of how Learn to Cope got started, like how, how did it form?
2: Well, okay. well, I remember when uh, Joanne and I were on the Consumer Advisory board at BSAS, I, I, I think it was only for three or four months, but you know it was during those three or four months I was hearing you talk about, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to put this group together and stuff, and I knew you weren't long for, for, for the Consumer Advisory board after that and stuff, because you were, you were gung-gung-ho with it the whole way stuff. Yeah. Well it was you know,
3: um, it was you know why? Because that was the first time. When I started connecting with other parents that I started feeling better mm. as someone that literally you know had been traumatized for so long, for so many ways, and then having it happen to one of my own children, I really needed that. I needed those other parents just as much as they needed somebody to kind of help get something going. So it was healing for me, really is what was ha- is what was what Willie was seeing. And I I didn't like a lot of the bullshit stuff. I mean, like the stuff like drove me nuts. And and I'd have to be like, you know, bottom line is this, you know, I don't want to hear this, 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 and this. I want to know about this. And that's what I just kind of tried to do. Um, And I don't know, I, I guess what happened was I just did it. I just called the superintendent in my hometown and I said, can I have a room? at the school, you know, and he's like, sure. And, you know, that first night, there was probably 40 people. And then we had to keep moving. It kept getting so large that I had to keep finding new rooms. We went from Randolph to the Stoughton police station. Then we went to Brockton. We would have a hundred people in the room every week. Wow. Line outside trying to get in. And what it was, was um, I allowed them to ask questions of each other, not me. I wasn't the guru. I was just the organizer. I didn't and I I never wanted to be the guru. I wanted to like have people work with me. (laughs) And one of the best things I think best decisions was to add education. So let's have guest speakers to educate us. And I learned some funny lessons along the way. Um, The favorite guest speakers that we have are people in recovery. you know, so what a learned to cope meeting now, um, and what it always has been is people should feel better when they leave than they did when they came in, and they should have support, education, resources, and hope. Hope is the one of the most important things you need hope to know that there is they sometimes they can find their way out, but we have to find our way out as far as Staying healthy mentally and and being, trying to be somewhat prepared for whatever is going to happen because we can't fix everyone's loved one. We can only be there and help them through the journey. And that journey might not end in a good way.
0: Right.
3: I mean, we do hear from people that have lost their kids that say, I'm just glad that I was a part of Learn to Cope because I was somewhat. Prepared and and they have a circle of people at least before they move on to the grief um, groups that are out there. Yeah. Um, hum, yeah, hum. And we're a Narcan provider. We teach overdose prevention. We train and give out Narcan even through COVID. We train online and we'll deliver it to people or mail it to them.
2: I think your organization is 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 vital because coming from the perspective of a therapist and an educator too I mean I often you know I I often say that you know that the friends and family end up more insane than the person using does because the person using is medicated we're not medicated against them and people don't know what to do they're they're more insane than their loved ones that are out there using yeah
0: I have a question How, how does your I'm looking at your website right now you have a ton of meetings. You've also expanded to Florida. It looks like, but, yeah. but my question to you is how do you differ from an AA meeting? If I'm in the audience and I say, okay, well, you know, we're in an AA meeting. How, how does it differ?
3: Well, it, it's very, very different. Um, because we have guest speakers that come and educate us on the science of addiction, on overdose prevention, um, we have book authors come and speak to us. We've had people in recovery are our favorite. Um, we also train on the signs and symptoms of overdose, and we literally are a pilot for the um, Department of Public Health Bureau of Addiction Services. So we give out free Narcan, which is a it's nasal naloxone, which is an overdose um, reversal medication not even a medication antidote. Um, we actually have on our website, we have a um, discussion board with people who join from all over the country, really. Um, some are from out of the country, and it's very private. It's not like a social media where people are putting their life out to anyone and everybody. It's very, very um you know people everything's free and confidential people register only because we want to know that they are a family member that they're not just looking at this to learn yeah, about us sure like right and, and, and then too, you know crosstalk like when i when you go to other groups you know if you hear somebody oh, talking about what they're going through or what or what their son or daughter or spouse or whoever they therefore did to find recovery Someone might want to ask them a question, so they'll raise their hand, and they're allowed to ask them a question. So we're not like, and and it's not all about one person at the front of the room. We welcome other people to be facilitators. So we're always adding new, fresh, it's not about one person. Learn to Cope is a huge team of people. I don't do any of this myself. I might've designed it. it, 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 No
1: I and team. It's a team. Exactly.
3: I mean, we have like 200 facilitators, but we look for a special, we listen for good listening skills, someone that doesn't have all the answers because we're not gurus, we're peers. And someone that can, can speak up and say, oh, okay, we, gotta, we need time for the next person. And then they sit back and we're doing the same thing on Zoom, um, which it was quite a challenge getting all those meetings up. But like our Florida group, totally just like the groups here. It's just people coming together. They're not tied to treatment centers. They're just people. um, And then they're actually attending our virtual groups with, so what we did when COVID happened is all of these meetings used to be in a space where you walked in a room, right? And then COVID happened. Some of our meetings, there's 60, 70 people, or there might be a meeting that there's 10 or 20 people. So COVID hit, we knew we couldn't have in-person meetings and it was like, oh my God, how are we gonna do this? So our team, which is amazing, um, got together and all of our regional managers um, and we started learning Zoom together first and just practicing and learning and just learning everything we could about it. And then it took us, I think, three weeks. And then by the end of March, we were like, learn to cope is online. So what we did was I'll use the example of Western mass. We have Holyoke, Springfield and Pittsfield, which is if you drove between those meetings, that's a couple hours of driving. Mm-hmm. We combined them all together in one meeting. Um, rather than trying to have 25 groups online Monday through Thursday, we wouldn't have been able to do um, So we took all of the regions and combined the meetings, like North Shore, we have Salem, Gloucester and Ipswich together. Um, We have Cambridge, um, Franklin and Fort Lauderdale together on Mondays. We have like New Bedford and Attleboro together. So, you know, what we've done is combined them and what's happening is even more people are joining now. We're getting more people from out of state so it's almost in a way a little scary because it's like when we are able to go back to in person, I'm not sure what that's gonna yeah.
1: I think you're gonna have to continue those those Zoom options yeah. because you know, because there's nothing like this anywhere. I
3: know. And well, I think got, that's probably what we'll
1: do. You've got Al Anon, but Al Anon is very book. Worthy. It's it's got a it's got an agenda.
2: And, Plus, you don't have the cross talk either. Usually,
1: right. And and learn to cope is it's not shooting from your hip, but it's shooting from your hip. It's meeting the families where they're at. Not exactly. okay. Today's October twenty fifth, and we're going to discuss. Oh no no no. You know what? Today's October twenty fifth, and who's in crisis? Let's let's yes. talk about it. Right. So the
0: families are welcome. So, so if I understand correctly, the families are welcome to come along with, okay. So that, that's the big difference, right? I mean, the
3: person struggling with the addiction. Yeah. No, we, yeah. we ask that they have one solid year of recovery, no matter what their recovery looks like, whether it's medically assisted recovery or 12 step or smart recovery, that doesn't matter to us. We don't judge that. But we do ask that they have one year in recovery because our meetings can get real heavy, Um, and you know parents are in really raw crisis, and it can trigger trauma for somebody that's in early recovery too. Because section 35, sometimes that gets brought up, Um, rape gets brought up, like things very traumatic things can happen, and if someone's in really early recovery, that might really trigger them. So we'd rather them be in their own meetings. And then once they have at least a year, which is even still early, um, they are more than welcome to come back as a speaker if they'd like, or maybe just to come and visit with their loved one. But um, we'd rather have them come maybe to share hope. Um, but yeah, it's really for the family and you know friends or loved ones of Part okay.
0: Um, so there's not, so, cause I was going to ask you, is there an age group, but there's not really any,
3: A- we would like them to be 18 or older. Okay. Uh, because again, there's some things that can be brought up that can be really traumatic. Um, especially if someone comes, which this happens way too often, but announces that somebody died, you know, in their family. Um, so it's, you know, You know, we don't want to traumatize a child. Um, And, you know, we have grandparents raising grandchildren. We have so many different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. This
0: is amazing. So you have over 200 people working with you. Are these volunteers or are they? So
3: we have 13 staff. We are funded by the Department of Public Health. Okay. We're also a nonprofit, but the nonprofit dollars never go to staff or salaries. Um, And we don't do a lot of fundraising, but we do have a nonprofit side to us. But, so we have 13 staff members. So that's how we're able to pay our staff and our rent for our office and going all over the place, doing resource work. And even though right now we're virtual. um, And then everyone else, it's volunteers. And the volunteerism that we have is incredible. Like when we have an event on a Saturday, for you know, say the volunteer appreciation lunch that we do every year to show them that we appreciate them. They all come on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, but we have like a nice lunch because we want to thank them. And, and DPH wants to see them have some sort of self care too, because let's face it, they're dealing with the same trauma the staff is at these meetings. I mean,
2: secondary trauma, yeah.
1: And it will.
3: Yeah, and we come from all walks. We're judges, doctors, teachers, you know, we're, we're gay, we're straight, we're married, we're divorced. Like we come from every walk, uh, but everyone just helps each other.
1: And I think the big thing is, is that the volunteerism is, you know, you've got people that run the groups that have lost their kids, yep. but they've been where somebody who's walking through the door has been or yeah. well, you have somebody who has kids that are in long-term recovery but they've wa- they've been where those people have been when they walk in the door yeah. so part of AA you know and part of NA is when you you're in recovery you give back and it's the same mentality you want to give back you want to know you want to let it we parents who have kids that are in recovery or suffering from substance abuse we are a family Yep, that's it. Like, you know, my next door neighbor, she doesn't suffer from substance abuse. She doesn't. I don't know what her history is. She's not family. She's a friend. We don't talk the same language at learn to cope. We talk the same language.
0: Yep, It's, exactly. it, it's a safe place to be. Well, How yeah. wonderful. I, I mean, how has it helped you? Uh, you were going to say something. I'm sorry. I got you off.
3: No, no. Go ahead. I can say it after. How,
0: how has it helped you as a person? How has this helped your personal, uh, you know, your trauma? that you were talking about earlier. How how has this helped you as a person?
3: Well, I have to say, I, I don't think I would have gotten through a lot of the things that I've had to face. Um, personally, I, I'll tell you, I lost my niece two years ago to a fentanyl overdose. Um,
1: it was right, thought, before the, right before the 31st.
3: Yeah, yes, that's right. You were there for, at that vigil. Um,
1: she, got up, she got up to speak at that vigil and I don't even think you were I was, you
3: started, are I, I was out of my mind with grief. I, she was like a daughter to me because she was my sister with the schizophrenia's daughter. So my mom and I kind of co-parented her. She was just, we, you know, tried so hard for many years to help her trauma. And, you know, she found the pill. Long, you know the story. But um, I have to say, like, that really hit me hard. I mean, that, oof. I mean, I, you know, I've been through a lot like everybody else. Um, but you know, I never knew years ago starting this, what was going to happen in the future. Nobody does, but I have to tell you, my, um, people that work with Learn to Cope, um, you know, Kathy Day, Carrie Walsh, like all of our staff, they took such good care of me. Like I was not good for a while. Um, I was still obviously doing Learn to Cope and sort of running like a machine, I guess. But, um,
2: autopilot.
3: Yeah, and she was on life support for five weeks. So I spent almost every day by her side in the hospital, and I slept overnight in the room some of the nights because I just didn't want her to be alone. But, um, you know, I knew what the outcome was going to be, it just was taking a long time. But I look back on it now, and I was kind of crazy. I was
1: kind of losing it. Um, don't you think, don't you think it's because? and i'm not saying like we're the professionals but like i look at myself when i help a family or i'm working with a family and their kids like in crisis and stuff and i'm like okay well i'm going to count my blessings because i've been where they've been and i've got this and and it's like you think that you we we, we think like our mind tricks us that we're going to be able to fix them ultimately we know deep down inside it's up to them but our mind we get into that that drive and now it directly affected your family and and it's your family and it's like, wait a minute, you know, where where did I go wrong? Like it's your family yeah. and it, it brings us back down to reality to say, no, we can't. You need right. to be reminded. You need to get grounded. Yeah, I mean, it took your legs out. We were all worried about you. It, it, it took
3: my matter. legs right out from under me. I have to tell you like, if it wasn't for all the girls and guys that were for Laura to cope. So my office, I used to have a wall covered in obituaries because I had this process where whenever somebody's family member died, I would cut out the obituary and hang it on the wall. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what else to do, but I wanted, you know, so I would hang them on the wall. And finally, like I had this wall covered. So while I was there in the hospital with Janine, they removed all of them and, you know, put them in like a safe place. They painted the walls of my office they hung up like beautiful like sayings in my office. Um, the starfish story, they, they went on my Facebook and sort of like printed out all my happy pictures of things and they made these beautiful window frames with all my pictures in it. And I had no idea, they painted my office like a nice really light blue color. They literally changed my office so that when I would come back I wouldn't be looking at that wall anymore and they wanted me to feel comfortable again and it was one of the nicest things anyone has ever done for me in my life like I was absolutely shocked when I walked into my office but I guess what I'm saying is if it wasn't for them and all the people I've met all these years I mean that's what has helped me Heal. and I am really proud of I'm okay with saying now that I'm really proud of what learn to cope is um, and I never knew I was going to do anything like this and I'm happy that when I do croak someday that I can say <laughs> I love something good
0: <laughs> 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 so if you could sum it up because that was my next question if you could sum up what learn to cope is all about can you tie it up in a little bow like is it what is the how would you su- essence yeah <laughs> a bow. (laughs) Will you leave me alone? We're getting close to Christmas time, okay?
3: So we're kind of a funny team. (laughs) um, We, right now, I guess I'll describe what we're like right now because of COVID. We meet on Tuesdays and Fridays from like 10 to 12, and we all help each other and give each other advice on how to handle this situation or that situation. And we are just... uh, I guess I'd, I'd like to wrap the team up in like a pretty little bow box because I feel like we're all like a gift to each other, maybe, mm. but then what we can do for each other, then that sort of emulates to everybody else. Family. You're father family. Other sane. Like we, we're like supervising each other. Um, you know, just to make sure we're all okay and in check. Um, so I guess what we are is just a bunch of good people that have all, almost all of us have been affected by this in some way mm. that are giving back to someone else. And we're lucky enough to this, for this to be like, a, it's been my life's work now, I guess.
0: Well, thank you. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on. If you could um, give people information about a, how they can volunteer. If you are looking for volunteers, b) um, where they can get in touch with you and learn more about the organization and how they can um, attend.
3: Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, the first thing you could do is visit the website, which is www.learn with the number two, cope.org. And if you scroll down on the main page, you can fill out a confidential registration form. um, If you want to join a virtual meeting, the only requirement is to be a family member or a loved one. None of that information is shared outside. It's just so that we can figure out which meeting you should go to and which area of the state you're at. Um, and then to be a volunteer, really you just start going to meetings. And you know, once you're familiar with the meeting, you know, one of us might approach you and ask you if you'd ever wanna be a facilitator, or you just say, hey, I'm interested in being a facilitator. How do I go about that? Or we train you to be a Narcan trainer a lot of our facilitators are also Narcan trainers. I think
2: Excellent. Eighty of them that are
0: trained. in the ER. Well, thank you, Joanne, for coming on. I I, I really appreciate. We all really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing the great resources and the information and the great great work you're doing because we need people like you. And um,
3: there's a lot of good people um, out there helping people. It's not just learn to cope either, but I mean that's what it's all about like people just helping people it was really nice to meet you and nice to meet you, you again willie and
0: chris yeah. <laughs> nice to see you okay. thank you and um so that's our show for the week thank you to mike weber and i don't know if you guys have any closing thoughts any closing thoughts willie uh,
2: Joanne, we're, we're gonna have to get Charlie and Finn together at some point in the spring or so. That would be, yeah? nice. I'm sure
3: Finn would love that. <laughs>
2: These are dogs, by the These way, These are now, d- stomp and gold. Yeah, they're Yeah,
0: Yeah. They're, yeah. Uh, my dog was barking actually, so maybe Bailey could come too. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah bring her on. And, um, yeah, Chris, any closing thoughts? I just
1: want to say that, like, whenever I have a family in crisis or very new to the game. Learn to cope is where I direct them because it's a great place to start.
0: And if you're saying it, it's
3: fine to say thank you,
0: Chris. Yep. C- Chris is legit. So if she's saying it, it's. Uh,
1: it's re- what did it on
0: What's that? What? <laughs> what?
1: I said, even though
0: you're I on you. It's okay. Um, so that's our show for the week. Thanks to Mike Weber, of course, who keeps the, uh, the train moving. Thanks to Willie Drinkwater, Kristen Perry Long. And you, Andy. And and me. Thank you, Andy. uh, Thank you. And of course, Joanne Peterson. And that's our show for the week. Please visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Map 2020. We'll see you next week. Thank
2: you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Take care, everybody. Thank you.